They don't even know about the prophecy. They don't even know that Aslan is on the move. Well, good morning, everybody. We are so glad that you're here uh, once again. It's great to see a full house uh, on Palm Sunday as well. A great weekend to worship together as a family. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, would love to do that after worship uh, today as well. But if you're sitting there confused, wondering why your pastor is telling you about talking beavers, let me explain. Uh, kind of an odd way to begin the sermon. Uh, I know the scene you just saw is from uh, the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, particularly the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Just a show of hands, how many people have at least heard of it or read it or uh, on any of those? Okay, most of you. Awesome. That's great. Well, if you don't know, uh, this was written by uh, C.S. Lewis. And so the books came first and then they kind of made the movies out of them as well. But C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest Christian authors and thinkers uh, of the, really the last century. And so uh, he used to be an atheist. And then when he came to faith, God gave him this passion for taking kind of some complex truths of the gospel and of the kingdom and putting them in a way that children could understand. And so Lewis was an English professor at Oxford University, and he would get together with some of the other professors and scholars, and, uh, and they would sit around and smoke their pipes and dream of ways of communicating the gospel through children's stories or through fantasy stories. And they each wrote novels. And one of C.S. Lewis's best friends was another uh, young man by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien. You may have heard of him that wrote a decent book called The Lord of the Rings, uh, which took off a little bit as well and became a movie as well. And so they would try to figure out how, how can we create characters that children will understand, particularly talking animals, I guess, that can communicate the truths of the Bible in a very unique way. And it ended up being some of the, the best books of all time because they relate to us because we're kids as well. And so Lewis and Tolkien and many others would, would write these. And so in the scene that you saw, the, the kind of the main characters, the four main children here, have entered in, just follow me here, this doesn't make sense for you, entered into a wardrobe and entered into the world of Narnia, and they encounter Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, that's their names, uh, of course. And so the beavers sort of get them up to speed with some of the things that are happening, like the prophecies that are now coming to be Fulfilled, And when all these prophecies happen, then you'll know, do you hear what he said? Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. The king of the whole wood is on the move. And as mentioned, Aslan is the king, and he happens to be portrayed, Lewis has him portrayed as a great lion. And so what Lewis would do in a lot of these books is pull in themes and different things from the Turkish culture. And so if you didn't know, Aslan is actually Turkish for lion. And so he didn't just choose that randomly for this character because Aslan is essentially the God, the Savior, the Messiah, the God character here. And he chose that for very good reason. Lewis knew his Bible and he knew that in Revelation 5, verse 5, of the many names used for Jesus, one of the best ones and one of my favorite is the Lion of Judah. And Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and the clan and it came from Israel. And so he is the Lion of Judah, the one who has come to save the Messiah, the lion who comes to rescue Narnia from the evil that has been thrust upon it. So I don't know if you caught it or not, but in that short little scene, the children are kind of afraid and they're worried about some of the evil that they've encountered in Narnia and the beavers reassure them and the entire mood shifts in the room when Mr. Beaver says, ah, but Aslan is on the move. And I, I don't know if the movie captures all of it. I think the books are better than the movie, but watch how Lewis writes about this in the actual book. It's up on the screen, what he writes. He says, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more 
than you do, but the moment the beaver spoke these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, every one of the children felt something jump inside. It's like something inside of them was touched by a spirit of hope that no matter what darkness or evil they're surrounded with, hope is on the way. Aslan is on the move. Rescue is coming. And one of the phrases that you hear us say a lot around hope is God is on the move. Let's say that together. God is on the move. And I don't know how you respond when you hear that if I say Aslan is on the move or more specifically, God is on the move. How do you respond to that? What happens in your heart? When I say, you know, guys, God is on the move at hope. Is there something in your heart that for some of you that goes, that's cute, John. Thanks for sharing that. It's a cute little saying you have there. That's great. Or for some of you, maybe there's a sense of complacency in your heart today. They say, you guys, God is on the move. He's literally growing us deep and wide and we're, we're busting out of this building and God is changing lives and the people and the lives around you. Does something inside of you go, oh, great, good. That's good. I'll let those people do their thing. I'm just here to worship. It's Palm Sunday. I'm going to wave my palm branch and then go home and eat lunch. God is on the move, or is there this wild hope that rises up in you as well to say, God is on the move. I may be up against it in my life today, but Aslan is on the move. The Lion of Judah has come to rescue us. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. Or does it get old for you? Oh, yeah, God's on the move. All right. It's easy to kind of grow cold and callous to that as a church. Maybe you can't relate with the children's story. There was a a concerned mother that once wrote to C.S. Lewis after all of these films because she was concerned that her son was falling in love with the character of Aslan. And so she was so worried and consumed by this that she wrote Lewis, the author, and said, I'm I'm a little worried because I I want him to his affections to be for God, for, for Jesus. And Lewis wrote back, Ma'am, you need not be concerned, for everything that your child loves about the great lion is true of our God. He also wrote, and later on in that beaver scene, one of the children asks, is he, is he safe? <laughs> you know, most lions aren't safe. You wouldn't want to hang out with them, right? So kind of a weird analogy for God. So is this lion, is Aslan safe? And the beaver kind of chuckles and he says, safe. <laughs> of course he's not safe. He's the Lion of Judah. Of course he's not safe, Mr. Beaver says, but he's good. And your God isn't safe either, and he's calling you to follow him. Aslan is on the move, God is on the move, and we're called to be on the move as well. Just as you have different responses to that in your heart this morning as a follower of Jesus, there was a lot of different responses as well to the Lion of Judah about 2,000 years ago when the real Lion of Judah himself was on the move as well. And as Christians, we have a fancy name for that, and we call it Palm Sunday. So here we are. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 21. That's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bible app, pull out your phone or your tablet. We'd love for you to follow along. Matthew chapter 21. If you need a refresher, God's been on the move. I mean, Jesus has been on the move for a while. If you've been around the last five or six weeks, this whole series that's called the Jesus Run, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and it actually all started with this unique-looking boat over here, which is fantastic. If you haven't checked this out in a couple weeks, this started from a blank canvas Uh, And our creative team has painted this on the side of this. And if you haven't come up and looked at the detail, Jesus is over here in the right-hand corner, and he's now looking back. Our very text today, right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's looking over Jerusalem. 
knowing what's coming in the final week of his life. It's a fantastic painting on the side of the boat. But we kind of played with that analogy that Jesus has been on the move since he first called the, the fishermen, his early disciples, out of the boat. And he said, come follow me. And so right away, you can't follow Jesus and stay where you are, right? If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be on the move. The disciples had to leave everything behind and follow Jesus as we're called to do as well. And so we've been following Jesus through these stories that our creative team has done in these paintings as well. And so we've learned about the power of healing and lifting up prayer, the, the mount of transfiguration where the light shone on Jesus. We learned about last week, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few back there with the wheat field. You see the bread and the fish when Jesus fed basically 10,000 men, women, and children with a little boy's lunchable, uh, essentially, uh, over there as well. And then on Monday, Thursday, coming up this Thursday, we've got the bread and the wine, and we'll learn all about communion and the significance of the Passover. And then we have this interesting thing over here on the wall, a palm branch, which you hold in your hands as well. Everybody just shake them out so I know you have them uh, as well. We got these palm branches. Now that's a little odd. And so we arrive on the scene here and it's Palm Sunday. Maybe you woke up this morning, you're like, I got to get myself to church. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, And we're glad that you're here. This is a big day for Christians all over the world. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And when he enters the city of Jerusalem for what will be the final week of his life, of his ministry, it is a buzz. Jerusalem is packed full of people because it's the Passover. Everybody say Passover. This is an annual festival, just like we have our holidays of Christmas and Thanksgiving. This was a big deal for the Jewish nation at the time. This is, it still is. Uh, this Passover, everybody would come to Jerusalem and take a pilgrimage there, and it was a big old party. I mean, it kind of resembled like a Super Bowl parade or a World Series parade. Now, I'm having you remember the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. Does anybody remember that? There's a football game that won the Super Bowl. Okay, gotcha. Even if you're not an Eagles fan, right? And they were like burning stuff up and flipping over cars. I mean, that's basically Palm Sunday, minus the flipping over cars part. Um, But people were just abuzz. There was energy. There was excitement. It was the Passover. People were so excited that they heard the Messiah was coming into town. They started doing this odd thing. They started ripping palm branches down off the trees and laying them down on, on the road as if to form kind of a red carpet event, like the Academy Awards or something like that. And they started putting them down and laying down their cloaks and then waving their palm branches in the air. And you would think, well, that's a little odd, but it was pretty normal for them. They understood this in the context of the Roman takeover of Jerusalem at the time. Rome was Uh, the Roman government was taking over the entire world at the time. And so when a Roman general would go out and win a great battle and conquer another region of the country, that general would come back with his victorious army and they would enter into town and people would wave palm branches as a sign of victory to say, we win, (laughs) we've killed you, we've taken you over, right? We're establishing the Roman kingdom on this earth, right? We're winning. So it was a sign of victory to say our victorious king, our victorious Caesar, our victorious general is coming back into town. And so they were doing this. And I would imagine, for most people, expected to see coming down that road a general with a sword and a helmet and a chariot on a white horse, victorious. And instead, they got a carpenter on a donkey. Talk about shattered expectations, right? And so here Jesus comes in, and yet they know that Jesus has called himself the Messiah, And these Jews, they know their Bible, and so they start waving their palm branches, and everybody starts yelling, Hosanna, just as we sang this morning. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you think that they just chose those words at random, look up Psalm 118. Go to it. It is the entire prophecy that Mr. Beaver was talking about, 
Aslan is on the move. The Messiah is coming, and it's right out of there. They would yell, Hosanna, blessed is the king. So to give us kind of a picture of what that was like, I don't want you just to hear about it. We're going we're gonna to do it this morning. It's going to be great. So I know, I know it's hard. We're Lutheran. You don't feel like yelling, but we're going to yell in church, okay? So I'm going to split you right down the middle here so you can decide which side you want to be on. This side over here is going to be the Hosanna side, and this side of the room over here is going to be the blessed of the king side, okay? So we're going to have a friendly little competition. Who can be the loudest? The only condition is when you uh, yell out your phrase, you got to wave it around in the air like you just don't care, right? So just, it's Palm Sunday, so just get into it a little bit, okay? I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is Lutheran, so just get over it, and we can do it together, okay? You ready? So when I point at you, you yell, and we'll have a little competition. Ready? Here we go. Wait for it. Oh, you got it. Good job. Now all together, the whole thing. Hosanna. Blessed is the king. Good job. Turn to your neighbor and say, good work out of you. Tell them that right there. Good work out of you, right? Hosanna, which is kind of odd to yell. It sounds like, woo, go Jesus. You're awesome. Do you know what you just yelled at the top of your lungs in a Lutheran church? Save me kind of an odd thing to yell. You don't hear people, you know, during worship say, save me. Jesus, I'm a terrible, rotten sinner. I need saving. That's what we just yelled. And that's a very odd thing to yell unless you need saving from something. And that's where some of us are at this morning and where I've been at many times. I don't think I need saving because I'm pretty good. Every people say that. I'm a pretty good Christian. Or I'm just, I'm a pretty good person. I don't really say Hosanna. I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I have a good job. I have a good family. I've got a nice house, nice car. Whoops. Uh, I, I'm feeling pretty good about my life. I, saving? I, pretty, I'm an adult for pity's sakes. I don't, I don't need saving. Well, then Palm Sunday and Holy Week and specifically Good Friday of the cross and Easter is not going to make any sense to you if you're good. If you're good by yourself, if you've got life pretty well figured out. I just come and go to church and go through the motions, but you don't need saving. (laughs) Well, that's going to be a problem. But for the people there that day, they knew. This was their king. This was the king. They knew they needed saving because they had been under Roman oppression for all these years. And so the prophecies, as Mr. Beaver was saying, are coming true. This was supposed to be their king. Jesus was supposed to be that great king that would ride into Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and take over their oppression. They'd take back the temple and Jerusalem and he'd set them free from this oppression. And so they would say, Hosanna, save us, King Jesus. I mean, their king was literally on the move in front of their eyes. And they got that part right. But here's what they missed, and I don't want you to miss this on Palm Sunday. With all due respect to their national pride of Israel, with all due respect to any of our national pride, with all due respect to the powers and presidents and principalities that exist in the world then and today, Jesus was making it abundantly clear by what he said and by what he didn't say during his ministry. Jesus was making it abundantly clear by what he did and what he didn't do. Jesus was making it abundantly clear when he was arrested as an innocent man, God himself that has the power of the universe in the palm of his hands that could have crushed his enemies in a second at any point along this journey. When they came and bound his hands and arrested him and flogged him and beat him and shoved railroad spikes into his wrist and a crown of thorns into his head and put up on a cross, he could have come down and called down the legions and armies of angels of heaven at any time and ended it, but he didn't. 
In fact, he looks Pilate in the eyes during his arrest, beaten and bloodied and bruised as an innocent man, and he looks Pilate, the power of the day, right in the eyes and says, you have no power over me because my kingdom is not of this world. Don't ever forget that. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and thank God that it's not. (laughs) Thank God that it's not, that Jesus had a bigger picture in mind. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and if it was, you'd know, because we'd be fighting and I'd be winning. It wouldn't even be a competition. If this life and if my kingdom as a king was about earthly power and riches, you'd know I'd be the richest person in the world. But Jesus says, I'm not just the king of kings, I'm the Lord of lords, and I'm your savior, which means my primary mission is not aligning with your political agenda or your social agenda. I have a much bigger plan in mind, and it's saving you from your own sin and your own impending death, something that you can't legislate and make a law for or ever defeat on your own. I came for mission. I came to save you. Think bigger on Palm Sunday, Jesus says. Think bigger. For the crowd that day, their expectations were about to be shattered. Jesus says, my kingdom isn't in a castle in this world. It's eternity. And I want to be with you forever. That's why I came. And so as you look at this story of Palm Sunday, there's a lot of different responses around Jesus and the different types of people that are gathered around him that day. And I want to highlight three today in particular, three different responses to this king, three different responses to this lion that is on the move, three different responses to God on the move. Think about it this way in kind of a visual sense. This may make sense more to some of you. If Jesus is here kind of in the middle and the goal is to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to be close to him, there's different spheres of commitment around Jesus as well. There's different ways of of, of getting connected to Jesus, different groups of people around him, different responses just like there are today. The first group of people that we see around Jesus on Palm Sunday are, of course, the fans. Everybody say fans. And you know what fans are. I mean, we, we watch sports. We know about sports. We know what fans are. Jesus had plenty of fans as well. Look back at the story. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So they were getting all fired up, and most of them didn't even know who he was, right? So you've got this whole group of people going crazy and cheering for some guy that they've never met. Now, you might be asking, why all the buzz? I mean, Jesus is just a rabbi. He's just like a pastor. He's like a teacher. So what's all the excitement about? We've got to understand the context of the story. Just a few days before, Jesus was in a little town called Bethany with his friends Mary and Martha And his best friend Lazarus happened to be dead in a cave with a giant stone across it. And pretty much everybody there is like, this is the end of the story. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Well, Jesus walks right up to the situation and, well, he raises the dude from the dead. Okay? So if somebody did that here in Des Moines, if you got word that somebody could raise people from the dead and they were walking down Ingersoll, you better believe the streets would be lined, right? There's an energy and an excitement and a buzz, and I wish I could get in Jesus' head when he's coming into town on that donkey on Palm Sunday, and people are like, whoa, it's the guy that rose somebody else from the dead. He rose Lazarus from the dead. And I want to get inside Jesus' head, and he's probably just chuckling to himself, said, just wait a week. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you guys, you haven't seen anything yet. How about I just go ahead and raise myself from the dead? That'll be pretty cool, right? You haven't seen nothing yet. 
You haven't seen nothing because I'm going to be put in a tomb with a giant stone rolled away. We'll get to that next week, right? Spoiler alert, he didn't stay there, right? You think that was cool. So that's why people are getting excited, right? But all of these people, they don't know much about Jesus. They're just waving their palm branches and going through, woo, Jesus. They don't really know who he is. In sports, we call these people fans or more specifically bandwagon fans. Everybody say bandwagon, right? Bandwagon fans, right? You know what that means. When something's going great and something's popular, everybody hops on. When it's not going great, everybody hops off. You know the deal, right? Anybody watching the basketball tournament, the NCAA tournament? I mean, brackets shattered. Now it's just for fun, right? So have you heard about, I mean, this is the story of the tournament, is Loyola Chicago. There's this little uh, Catholic school from Chicago. I, I, I don't know. They're must be praying a lot. I don't know what's going on. But they just keep winning and winning and winning uh, these upsets. And I, you know, if they were Baptist or Methodist, they probably would have lost by now. But they just keep, I'm just kidding. They just keep on, they just keep on winning. They just keep on going. And I don't think it's that as much as their 98-year-old team chaplain. Everybody say hi to Sister Jean up here uh, in the corner. She, literally, she goes with the team everywhere. She wears a little jacket. If you watch, she's got her entourage. I love it. She's got all these bodyguards that like push her wheelchair and everything. And, like, she is the heart and soul of this team. And I mean, she is so popular. She's trending. Everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. I mean, she's trending on Twitter. Last week, they made a sister. She's a nun. They made a Sister Jean bobblehead. I mean, that's how popular she is, right? Just growing in popularity. Everybody's pumped up about Loyola Chicago, and rightly so. They, last night, they won. Again, spoiler alert, they're in the final four, right? They're an 11 seed. It's only happened four times in history. There they are. And so to know what all the buzz is about, their first three games, they won basically on last-minute shots, on buzzer-beater shots. So wa- watch this, of their, their first three games, the last shot of how they won, and tell me you're not a bandwagon fan as well and get excited about Sister Jean. Let's take a look. Oh, man, it's impossible not to get excited. But you see the sign on a mission from God, right? You've heard that summer before, right? God is on the move. They're on a, I mean, leave it up to the Catholics, right? My word, we're on the same team. I'm, I'm excited for him, right? But here's the thing. Until three weeks ago, how many people were a fan of, let alone knew that Loyola Chicago had even had a basketball team, right? This is the epitome of bandwagon fans, right? When everything's great, you jump on board and you wave and you get excited, But when everything goes wrong, you leave. And I would imagine that the real Loyola Chicago fans right now are looking at everybody all over the country going, really? (laughs) Seriously, where were you eight years ago when we went two and 30 for our record? You know, like, where were you when things were bad, right? Because it's easy to be a fan when everything's going well and that's all the buzz and the energy. And what the real fans are asking you as bandwagon fans are, is your heart really in it? Are you just along for the ride? Like, are you a real follower of Loyola Chicago basketball? Is your heart really in it? Because here's the deal. Jesus had thousands of fans. But six days later, well, five days later, I will tell you this. The crowd was much smaller. In fact, there was about three left. The fans were all gone when Jesus was hanging from a Roman instrument of torture. It's really easy to be a fan when your hero's not hanging dead on the cross. And at the foot of the cross, we'll get to later, was Jesus' family and closest friends. And maybe if you're honest, and I'm honest with myself, a lot of us love to be fans of Jesus. 
Jesus had plenty of fans. We, we love to stand back and admire Jesus. I've never met anybody that doesn't at least admire Jesus. Even if they're not interested in the whole church Christianity thing, I very rarely do I meet somebody and go, oh yeah, Jesus, man, he had a lot of great things to say. I love some of those like inspirational quotes, you know, like they're Bible verses. Oh yeah, Bible verses. You know, I even post them on my Facebook wall sometimes. Like Jesus is an awesome guy. I just love to stand back and admire. He's a great teacher and great prophet, had a lot of great things to say. He's, I'm a huge fan of Jesus. But then the problem is that lasts as long as I can stay comfortable and safe. But the fans say, no, I'm just going to stand on the side of the road and and cheer. I'm not actually going to follow him. Because if I actually became a follower of Jesus, then I would have to like change some things and let him be in control of my life. Because the thing is, Pastor John, I'm a fan of Jesus, but I'm also a fan of a lot of other things too. And I kind of like to do things my own way. And so I'll pop in and out to worship and church once in a while. Maybe I'll think about joining a small group, but it really cramps my schedule because I'm a fan of a lot of other things. I got a lot of other priorities uh, in in my life. And I'll, I'll come and participate with this whole church thing if it fits into my schedule. And Jesus looks at the fans and says, Fads come and go. Popularity comes and goes. Parades come and go. Jesus says, I'm never leaving. And even when things are down in the dumps for you, I've never left you. Whatever you're up against today, I'm never going to leave. I'm really glad that Jesus isn't just a fan of us, that he's our savior that meets us right in the middle of our darkness. Because here's the thing. Fans just stay where they are and wave. Followers go with. And Jesus is calling you to move from being a fan of Jesus to a follower, which is what many did. Jesus says, I don't primarily just want your admiration. Woo, Jesus! I want your obedience, Jesus says. I want you to follow me, even though it may make things a little unsafe and comfortable. (laughs) Is the lion safe? Of course he's not safe but he's good, and he's worth everything. That's where the joy is found, and that's what the next group of people had found. Everybody say followers. That was the next group around Jesus. There was dozens, if not hundreds, of followers of Jesus that traveled with him across the countryside and and went and heard the sermons and saw the miracles, and for them, Palm Sunday was it. I mean, Jesus is constantly saying, if you read the Gospels, shh, don't tell anybody. Shh, I just healed this guy. I just healed this lady. Don't tell anybody, right? He doesn't want to get himself killed before it's time, okay? Jesus knew what he was doing, right? But now on Palm Sunday, it's like he's going public, okay? He is trending on Twitter. I mean, Jesus is here in Jerusalem. It is a buzz, right? And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're like, yes, we're finally going public because now I can say to all the fans, I'm with Jesus, Oh, yeah, and I'm going to ride his coattails all the way to the throne, baby. And when Jesus goes to the throne, I'm going to be popular. When Jesus goes to the throne, I'm going to get rich with him. Man, it's going to be awesome, and Jesus is going to kick out Rome, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to be on the winning team. And then Jesus says, yeah, about that, I'm going to die. What? Jesus is the only leader in the history of the world that at the pinnacle of his success intentionally chose the bottom because his mission wasn't on this earth. His mission was you and your heart. And that's why he did it, and that's why Holy Week matters. That's why we do Monday, Thursday services and Good Friday and Easter because it matters. Without this week, we don't have a chance. 
And so as followers of Jesus, we're called to follow Jesus wherever he goes, not just when it's easy. And so these followers of Jesus would follow him around, and then one time Jesus said, yeah, if anybody wants to come after me, you're going to have to like eat my body and drink my blood. Yeah, you think a lot of people were excited about that? The Bible says they all left. Jesus wasn't really about popularity. He was about saving your soul. And so people would leave. And then for some of us, we love to follow Jesus, but only up to a certain point. You're like, I'm all in with church. But then Jesus says things like deny yourself. And I'm like, wait, what? Like the world says, look after yourself first and get your needs met first. And the prevailing question for a lot of us is still when it comes to church, what's in it for me? And Jesus just kept railing against that over and over, and the disciples couldn't even get it through their heads. Wait a minute. So when I deny myself and I put myself on the bottom of the pyramid and I actually serve other people, Jesus says, yeah, that's where the joy is. And some of you are missing that today because you're still trying to get yourself filled up on everything but the one who can fill you up. You're still trying to fill your bucket with everything but the living water. Jesus says, I'm it. I'm what you're looking for. And you're never going to find the joy and satisfaction you're looking for in your life by serving yourself. Unless you turn outward like Jesus says. Deny yourself, then you'll find the joy. For so many of these followers, it was great, it was awesome. And to use like an analogy of a, a pool, you know, like they, they went all the way up to the edge. <laughs> but they never jumped in. They never got to experience the power of Jesus and the power of the resurrection. I mean, they saw it. But they're like, yeah, I should have placed my bets on Jesus when he said that whole thing like three days later, I'll be back, right? Probably should have stuck with him. But I ditched him when things got hard or uncomfortable. A lot of us love to do that. A lot of you are following Jesus, but you're like, eh, up to a certain point. Because Jesus like, says these crazy things like, love your enemies. Oh, I don't want to love my enemies. I want to hate them. And I want to get into rants against them on Facebook. And Jesus says, love your enemies, even on Facebook. Jesus said exactly that right there in Matthew. You can look it up. Don't just tolerate them. Love your enemies, even people on the other side of the political aisle. Don't rip into them. They'll know we are Christians by our opinions. They'll know we're Christians by our love. Love changes the world. That's a reminder of it. Opinions aren't going to change the world. Do something about it, Jesus says. Love and serve. But a lot of us find ourselves right there. We're like on the edge of the diving board or the edge of the gutter in our Christianity. We're like, I just, I don't want to go, there. I don't want to get too excited about this Jesus thing. So I'm just going to show up once in a while and I'm going to kind of be minimally involved and make faith a minimal priority in my life because I really don't want to take that step and actually jump in. Reminds me of a couple weeks ago, we uh, decided to take kind of a mini family vacation and go swimming and take the kids to a pool. Well, we found, we, this is free, parents, free advice here in the sermon uh, to, for you to give or take. We wanted to go to a pool with a water park, and there's one here in Des Moines over on Merle Hay Road. It's about eight minutes from our house, and our kids have no concept of time or direction or distance. And so we went out to I-80, we drove around for 10 minutes, and we parked it, and we said, we're here! And they're like, wow! This is awesome, right? We're on vacation. So that's a free advice. Uh, young parents, and we're going to milk that as long as we can until they realize, wait a minute, we're on Merle Hay Road, right? So, so there we are, and we, this is super exciting. Our almost five-year-old son, Caleb, is jacked for this. I mean, he has been preparing. He's got, like, a, a new swimming suit, Paw Patrol swimming suit, and he's got a uh, penguin floaty on, and he has been talking this up. He's like, we're going on vacation. We're going to a different country. Like, he's got that in his head. 
We're eight minutes from our house, right? And he's like, there's going to be pirate ships there. And then this hotel has a water park. And I'm going to get out. I'm going to get my own bed. You know, it's a fold-out couch. But it's awesome, right? And so he's pumped. He's been talking about it. He is so ready. We eat dinner there together as a family. We drive around. We get there, eat dinner. We get the swimsuit. The floaties on. He's got new goggles, everything. He gets to the edge of the pool. And I'm literally kneeling in the baby part of the pool. It's like a gradual entry pool. It's like this much water. And he's like, okay, I'm ready. And I go, I'll catch you, buddy. And he goes, I, I think I'm just going to kind of dip my toes in the water. I just... What? Are you kidding me? Right? I mean, we're kind of doing vacation on a budget here. But still, like, the point of it all, son, was for you to jump in. Go in the water. And eventually he did. And it was awesome. And it was fun. Woo, pirates. You know, the whole thing. It was great. But I'll never forget that moment of, like, Dude, this is why we came. I mean, he's the kid on the end of the board going, I don't know. Yay, Jesus! And some of you are going to spend most of your adult lives on the end of the board and standing in the gutter of church. And you're never going to experience the joy of Jesus because you're only willing to be a follower up to a point. The secret is found in letting go. Trust that the God that predicted his own death and resurrection and did it can handle your life. Don't stay a fan, become a follower. Go all the way in. But some of you are like saying, wait a minute, time out. If I'm going to follow Jesus and surrender my whole life to him, that means I might have to change something. Yeah, you're saying, I, I might like hear something in a sermon one time and get convicted about it, and I can't just sit and listen to it and go home. I actually have to change. Yeah. Uh, you mean I might get in a small group and somebody might say something that offends me, but it's not just offensive because I was offended by it. It's actually something I'm convicted by and I need to change. Yeah, and you need to listen to it and change. Oh, you mean Jesus might call me to do something that's safe or unpredictable and I might have to change an attitude or a habit or, or I might have to, 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 to work through an addiction with other people? Yeah, because Jesus wants to set you free. He doesn't want to just come and give you some advice. He wants to change your life and transform it from the inside out. I want to be your God, Jesus. If I might, Jesus, if I become a follower and our family becomes a follower, we might have to put you at the center and get past our stubborn pride as a husband and a wife and work through that, Jesus, and put you at the center of our marriage. We might have to change our whole schedule and our priorities as a family to make weekly worship and small groups and serving and modeling that for our kids a regular part of our days. Yes, Jesus says, because I want you to find the joy. Not in the gutter, in the pool, going all in with Jesus. Some of you are saying, yeah, John, I, I come, I pop in once in a while, I know a few people, I've got a few friends. You know what's better than friends? Family. And Jesus knew that that's where he would eventually want us to be as family because Christianity is hard and it's messy. And he knows that life gets difficult and you would need other people. Fans come and go, followers go up to a certain point, but Jesus wants us to be family. And that's ultimately where Jesus is calling us. You can't read it because it's too small because it's right next to Jesus. And you're like, family, what? That doesn't have anything to do with Palm Sunday. Well, a few days later, Jesus is hanging on that cross 
and all the fans and most of the followers have left, and in John chapter 19, in Jesus' dying words, he says, we read, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, Jesus said, woman, here is your son, and he wasn't referring to himself. He was referring to one of his best friends. And to the disciple, to John, he said, here is your mother. Why would Jesus say that? Because the Christian life is meant to be lived as family. You can't do Christianity alone. And some of you are popping in and out as fans of Jesus, and you're missing it. You're missing out on the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment of being family. Jesus says, you're family now. That's how the church is described in the New Testament. You're the family of God. I know it's weird to think about because your own family is pretty dang weird, and you're a part of that weirdness, but you're sitting next to your brothers and sisters. This is your family too here this morning. I love one of my seminary professors, and this is a scholar, a New Testament professor, and she was a part of writing the, translating the Bible into the NIV. Like, a lot of you have an NIV Bible. She helped write it. Not the Bible, the translation of it. So she knows what she's talking about. And she says this. I wrote this down when she was teaching us one time. She said, I don't know how anybody could read about the early life of the church and conclude that church is a place you go to hear sermons. It is just incoherent. It is theologically incorrect to see the church as an event. And that's because the church isn't an event that you go to. It's a family that you belong to. And I want to challenge some of you today to move from being a fan of Jesus to a follower, to be family, to be vulnerable, to let yourself be known, to plug in, to start serving, to get outside of yourself and experience family the way that it was meant to be. In the core class you heard about, we talk about this, that in families, in healthy families, you care for each other, you connect regularly, and everybody contributes. Just like in a family, an earthly family with a mom and a dad and kids, everybody does the chores. Everybody helps out. Everybody contributes. And then comes the joy of being a part of something bigger than yourself, not being anonymous on the sidelines. Are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing the family of God and not just an event once a week? We want you to experience that. I'll never forget, back to the swimming pool, I was five, and that's once, and that's why I have compassion for my five-year-old son. I was the one standing on the edge of that diving board, and I was so freaked out, and I had my floaties, and my older brother was there with me, and my last hurdle to climb was going off the high board. And I remember I got up there, and I finally mustered up the strength to go off, and I jumped off the high board, and it was like, whoa, and I did a can opener. Remember can openers? This can opener, cannonballs, two knees can openers, one knee, and I'm like, boom, and I had this huge splash, and all my friends were like, woo, and I came out of the water, and my shorts split all the way up the back, so I'm like holding on to my pants, and I have this huge red welt on my back from hitting the water, you know, like splat like that, and I get out, and my brother's there, and we look at each other, and I'm like, that was awesome, you know, and holding my pants on uh, in that way. I was like, that was awesome, because that's the point. The point is to get in the water. The point is to go all in. The point is to swim, to dive in, to go all in with Jesus. And some of you are standing in the gutter. I hope that's why you come. I mean, I hope that's why you come is to experience church, not just talk about it. And I want to be, <laughs> be a family that does church in a way that we have stories to tell. I want to live my life in such a way that my kids and my grandkids and my great kids someday are going, 
holy cow, they took this thing seriously. Yeah, my dad was a pastor, but man, man, was he in love with Jesus. Put the pastor thing aside. That doesn't really matter. I'm just a follower of Jesus. But my parents, they, they were family with church. They had this group of people in Des Moines that they just loved and poured themselves into, and we were family together. I want to be that kind of church. I want to experience that kind of Jesus. And I, when I think about family stories, it sounds weird to think about this, but I learned this through meeting with a family that was going through a funeral a few months ago. One of the things we do as pastors is we meet with families to plan their funeral. And so I met with this family, this gentleman that was 73 and had battled cancer for five or six years. By the way, he didn't lose his battle to cancer because Jesus won. Because the cross has the final word. Death took this man and Jesus takes death. Amen? But I met with him and I met with his wife, a widow now of 41 years and his three grown daughters. And it was hard. I hate cancer, don't you? In Jesus' kingdom, there's not going to be any more cancer. I'm really thankful for that. Because I've met with way too many families that have experienced that. And it was hard. And we were weeping together and mourning his loss unexpectedly. And there was a lot of weeping. And then, kind of like the, the beavers, the room, the room shifted, the mood, whole mood shifted when I asked the question, hey, you guys, tell me about your dad. And for the next hour, nonstop, we laughed and we cried and we laughed some more and we cried and we laughed again and we laughed so hard that a couple of them snorted. You know, some of you do that. And you, we laughed and we cried and they just started telling me story after, yeah, remember that time when dad was mowing the, the, the lawn, when grandpa was mowing the lawn and his glasses fell off and he mowed over the glasses? Remember that time we were all as a, a family on vacation and there was water in the boat and then dad tried to put duct tape on it? Remember that was awesome? Remember, remember that time we were on, on family vacation and the car broke down and they just kept going and going and going and going? And here's why this matters, because many years from now, I want to sit around with all of you and tell stories of a life that mattered. And I want to tell stories and say, remember, remember way back in 2008 when some of us had this crazy idea of starting hope in the city and we like rolled in chairs and a sound system into an elementary school gym and a cafeteria in the, basically the middle of the night when it was freezing cold, but we, we did it because we wanted people to experience. I mean, it was so hard, but man, it was awesome and we bonded together. Remember, remember when we walked into that, that car dealership on Ingersoll and it was a trash hole and we didn't think that God could do anything with it and then God just kept growing the church and, and it was awesome and we all participated and built out the building. We did it as a family. That was awesome. And we did that together. And then people kept coming. And so we ordered uh, high top bar stools in the last service that there was people all, all up there. And it was awesome. And God filled those up because we kept inviting our friends because this good, good news was too good to keep to ourselves. And then what year was it? We would say, um, what year? Oh, it was 2000, uh, 2018. Our crazy pastor kept yakking at us about inviting people to Easter. And so I finally took that dang card and I went and I invited my neighbor. And guess what? It was that, that was the year that they finally came. It wasn't just an awkward conversation over the fence. Like my neighbor finally came and God got a hold of them and planted seeds in their heart. And now they know Jesus. That might be the most important thing I've ever done with my life 
was in 2018 when I finally invited somebody to Easter. It had nothing to do with Pastor John. It had nothing to do with Lutheran Church of Hope. It had everything to do with Jesus because he's the one that changes lives. Amen? That was the, I want to be able to tell family stories like that. I want to be able to tell stories and have you tell the story of that was the, that was the time. I was a part of that church. And my heart came alive. And I found out what life is all about. And now I'm living for Jesus and I'm not turning back. Those are the types of stories that I want to tell. That's what Jesus is calling us to move. From being anonymous and just popping into church to being fans, to being followers, and ultimately to being family. That's where the joy is at. Because you didn't just wave your palm branch. You let Jesus be your king. God is on the move. Aslan is on the move. The lion of Judah is roaring as he enters Jerusalem. Let's go back to Narnia one more time. And this clip's actually from the second film called Prince Caspian, where Aslan has been away for a while. And now he returns to meet one of the children, Lucy, and lets out one of the best roars because the lion is on the move. Let's take a look. The lion of Judah is on the prowl as he enters Jerusalem. And this morning he is roaring for your attention. Not to be one of many things, but to be the thing in your life. He is roaring for your attention and he is roaring for your affection. Aslan is on the move. God is on the move and he's calling you to join him this holy week to wave your palm branch and to know that the victory that Jesus has won is your victory as well. As we close today, we're going to sing a song. The band's going to lead us in a song that we've sung dozens and dozens of times, but maybe never with this type of motivation. The, the words read, our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles, and he's fighting your battles, whatever you're up against today, and he has fought and he has won the most difficult battle that you ever face in your life, one that you cannot win on your own, the one over your own sin and death. The lion of Judah is here, and he's roaring with power, and he invites you to follow him this holy week. Amen? Let's stand. Let's worship together.